up next to stage, you guys are going to like this guy. Uh, please help me welcome Craig Hoxley. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. How you doing? Good. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I have three daughters. Uh, people ask me if that's a problem for a father not to have a son. My oldest daughter asked me recently. Um, her name's Craig Jr. <laughs> <laughs> the kids have this uh, program they're doing at all their schools. It's called uh, PBIS, Positive Behavioral Intervention and Support. It's so they uh, show better uh, conduct in the class. I grew up in Catholic schools. We had SBBN, uh, Savage Beatings by Nuns. <laughs> I'll tell you something, the school sisters in Notre Dame were tough. One time I got suspended, it was by my ankles from the roof. <laughs> I rode the school bus when I was a kid, and we used to fog up the windows and write dirty words for the cars down on the streets to read but they couldn't read them because we didn't realize you had to write backwards. <laughs> and today's student is so much better educated than we are because they got the dyslexic kids to write on the windows for them. <clears throat> if you notice, all the uh, drugs nowadays on the TV set have side effects. Uh, there's this one arthritis drug called Vioxx with an amazing side effect. It permanently stops the progression of cancer by causing a fatal heart attack. <laughs> My doctor wrote me a prescription. He goes, the side effects will cause you to fall asleep while driving, cause sexual promiscuity, and cause compulsive eating. What is this prescription for? Beer? <laughs> you know, they actually found out that drinking too much beer has a a helpful side effect. It will, uh, in the next day, it will rid your body of harmful white castles. <laughs> <laughs> kind of groaned on that one, didn't you, hon? Apparently, you've been there before. <laughs> yeah, everybody says they exercise. I got a good buddy that drinks beer every single night. And if you say anything to him, he goes, yeah, but every morning I walk for two hours. Yeah, but you're looking for your car. <laughs> you just heard the comedic stylings of Craig Hawksley. My guest today, the retired comedian Craig Hawksley, is enjoying his life nowadays, doing whatever the hell he wants, when he wants. Yeah, good stuff, good stuff, but... He decided to come in and chat with me on uh, this episode of Conversations with Calcaterra, and I'm glad he did. Enjoyed talking comedy and writing and just whatever the else the hell he wanted to talk about. His days at Keishi, fun conversation. And I want to thank my sponsors, Dr. Mark Holland. Find his links and uh, telephone number on the show page if you have any back pain and need any adjustments and things of that nature. Dr. Holland and his associates can help you out with that. Stephen Walden at stephenwalden.com. Amazing artist, amazing friend. He'll be, uh, he'll be back for a future episode of the podcast, so stay tuned for that. You can find that at kencalgatera.com, my website. That's the, the hub for all my work. 
all my social media at Ken Calcaterra on Instagram or that's Twitter, Ken Calcaterra on Instagram, all that good stuff. Also want to thank Mike Albishan of Premier Insurance. Mike can find you competitive rates. You're looking for a different company. He's a guy that can guide you through that. You can go with the internet, but it's uh, always good to have somebody that you can dial up on the phone, help you out, and Mike is that guy. Once again, Ken Calcaterra at KenCalcaterra.com. You are listening to Conversations with Calcaterra, and here he is, my buddy Craig Hawksley. Craig Hawksley, my old friend. How are you, buddy? I'm doing good, Ken. This is great. Yeah, it's good to catch up, man. Haven't seen you in quite a while, and uh, always enjoyed the the times at Starbucks. I, I have been working from home and haven't really been out. I've been like a hermit. Yeah, well, when you're retired, you're just kind of uh, walking around the neighborhood and sitting around at Starbucks. And I do a lot of gardening, so I I'm not out that much either. Yeah, yeah. So re- how's retirement treating you? My what? How's retirement treating you? It's it's nice in in one respect. Uh, I really don't like to do things. Yeah. I mean, I, I worked for forty years or whatever, and now somebody will say, "Well, uh, come on over and we're going to do something." And it's like <laughs> when the time comes, it's like I don't want to do it. I just want to sleep as long as I want and get up when I want and go where I want and. So yeah, yeah. You did go, that do you today. get bored? I get a little <laughs> bored. I get a little bored down there, but I find stuff to do. Yeah, but I just, I just got tired of working. Uh huh. Just the grind, or what? What? What aspect of working? The work itself, or the grind of getting work? Because I well, know that. Well, well, yeah. Eventually, the I mean, grind. That's more work than the work itself. Well, that's what happened, yeah, Ken. The yeah. grind of getting work. I just got, I got tired of the politics and the bureaucracy that. And this isn't just in my job, just in stand-up and in the entertainment business. Uh, it's gotten so uh, things get so micromanaged mm-hmm. nowadays that when when a when a guy that's has no sense of humor is telling a comedian how to write a joke, it's time to get out of there. I, I just didn't need it, so I'm happier. Yeah, well, what's what's an instance where somebody's telling you to write a joke? I keep it clean, or uh, oh, or like oh, it's not funny, or what's oh what, what's no, a, they never even heard it. It would uh-huh. be. In in in, uh, in corporate America, a lot of people know this. There's these middle managers, and they're generally people that have reached their peak of performance, and, and in fact, they reached it a while ago, and now they're middle management, and so they pile everything on these people, and then these people take on more responsibility than they need. So literally, I'd be hired to do a corporate show. This happened so many times, and. Literally 30 seconds before I'm going on stage, mm-hmm. one of these middle managers would come up. And one of them said one time, uh, listen, <clears throat> you're not going to say anything dirty, are you? Because the CEO's down there. And I said, and I, I had nothing dirty planned, of course. I'm a pro. Yeah, yeah. But I looked this woman right in the eye and I go, well, if I am, it's kind of too late now, isn't it? <laughs> and she just freaked. Oh, that's evil. She yeah. just freaked. Yeah. And I had another one say that. She was just really worried that I was going to say something, you know. And again, it was a minute before I was supposed to go yeah. on walk on stage. Yeah, you think before you were hired that you, they would know your act. They don't. Because that's, no, I don't care if they know my act, but I'm getting prepared. 
yeah, yeah. I'm going inside myself and getting sure. ready, focusing on what I'm going to do. Yeah. And uh, she just said that, you know. Yeah, the timing, that's horrible. That destroys you out of your... And I said, uh, I out t- of the zone. Well, and I told, but I always said, okay, I go, here's what we're going to do. I said, if I suck, you blame everything on me. If I kick ass, you take all the credit. Yeah, yeah. Okay? And then I, and oh, there's Craig Oxley, and you walk on stage with that. Um, so I just, I had, I had people call me a liar. Uh, I did a, I, whenever I do corporate shows, I go to the venue, whether it's a hotel, whether it's a little bed and breakfast, whether it's a, a meeting room, and I go days before. Mm-hmm. I meet the meeting planner. I meet the guy that's, I meet the people I have to deal with. Who's going to turn the microphone on for me? Who's going to turn the lights on for me? Who's going to set the room up for me? That's all I care about. So I go out there and I'll find those people in the middle of the day on my time. And I will say, okay, where's, here's where I want the mic. Here's where I want this. And they're always wonderful people. And these people that are the meeting planners, this woman said, well, I called. And uh, they said, you didn't, you weren't there. I said, well, I went to the front desk and I gave them my business card. And I went and found the assistant guy because the regular guy wasn't there. And she called me a liar. <laughs> And uh, this was the same show. I had a bunch of people in the audience. When you're doing corporate shows, people are dressed up. And some guy came up in a sweater and shirt. And he got his award in a sweater and shirt. I'm emceeing this thing. So I'm all over this guy. I'm pounding on him for not dressing up. And the audience <laughs> is laughing. Their yeah. heads off. This woman, when I got to get paid, she goes, that was totally uncalled for what you did to that man. And I said, Okay. <laughs> how did the how did the guy himself receive it? Was was he? Uh, he was a little like, sheepish, but he should have been. <laughs> you know, he's showing up for a formal affair in like he's going to the movies. Was this Ken Bone? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who he was. Wearing his red sweater. Yeah, that guy. No, no, no. Yeah, right. <laughs> it was like that. I'm though. trying to be funny. I'm, no, try- I'm trying I, to throw I was some trying comedy. To think he's Ken Bone, but yeah, no. The uh, you show up in inappropriate garb and somebody. I, I, I did a thing one time. This is good. I, I, I gave Bob Costas a joke. I did this thing at, um, it was this big, one of his uh, uh, things where he was helping out. I think it was Cardinal Glennon. Yeah, yeah, he does a lot of that. Yeah. He's amazing. And I got hired to go up there, and it was kind of a little roast on Bob, and I wrote some stuff just for him. And uh, the uh, Archbishop Regali was there. And this was a black tie thing. Costas and these guys were all wearing tuxes, mm-hmm. and I might have been wearing a tux too to go up on the stage. And Bishop Regali was there, and he had all the Regali regalia on. He had all the, <laughs> he had the mitre or whatever. Yeah. I don't know, not the mitre. That's what the the big one. But but he had the the Burger King hat on, and he had on he had on a cape. No, wow, a freaking with, cape, wow. With a, a, a pink lining. That's no joke, man. You don't, you're not joking when you have a cape with a pink lining. Pink uh, lining. To, and, and, it, and it was black and pink. Yeah. And so I, I gave Costas a joke. Uh, he, he got up there and he says, well, uh, everybody got the notice that it was a black tie affair, except Bishop Regali, who got the pink cape invitation. <laughs> but those were the things where somebody was dressed. Yeah. In a way, it wasn't inappropriate, but the bishop laughed. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you just got it's the context of it. You got to realize a comedian, you're going to get ribbed, and you got to laugh at yourself. Plus, I gave it to Bob Costas because I knew nobody would say something. Yeah, yeah. And he used it, you know, and it was great. He got a big laugh. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. Bob Costas, genius. Love that guy. Yeah. Yeah, man. So you ever Google yourself? I mean, do you see that? Do you see the, the pink cape affair or like Oh, no. That, that never. <laughs> no, that doesn't get on Google. That never. That, that was before all that stuff. I mean, Google, if you think about it, it hasn't been here that long. Yeah. So people weren't dumping everything onto the under the internet. Although people who save tapes of stuff now dump it onto the internet. Oh yeah, I googled you and uh yeah, some good bits, man. I mean, I uh it's been a while since I heard some of your some of your comedy and uh but there's some things I I hadn't had heard well, and it's been a while since you know, I've done it. I mean, mostly we just uh I don't know if I, if I've seen you at a live show ever. I'm I'm embarrassed to say I don't think I have. You well, know, I was great. I didn't get no, I know you're funny. Man, I was great. Too bad. It's good stuff, man. I, I didn't realize you had played the Grand Ole Opry. Oh, yeah. That's I'll no tell joke, you. man. No, that's, no. A, that's a coveted venue. That's just like the, the promised land. The original Grand Ole yeah. Opry, Ryman Auditorium. I stood on that center stage. They got a circle right in center stage. That's the mark. Yeah. And that's where Hank Williams and Lottie Don, everybody, all these great people play and it's it's a probably i don't know thousand twelve hundred seat auditorium it's benches bench yes yeah, like old pews right old church yes. pews yeah bench seating but what a great room i mean what a great sound uh and that was a fun show too a five camera shoot and that's fantastic yeah yeah, yeah, I think James Taylor was kicked out of the Grand Old Opry, out of the Ryman, uh, when it was at that point for really? like signing the stage. Because it's like sacred space, and he, like I don't know, with a Sharpie or something, signed his name, on the, and they're like, whoop, see ya, you can't come back. I didn't think they'd let him, I mean, Elvis had a hard time getting on there, because uh, he wasn't country enough for him or something. Yeah, but I, yeah, I don't know, maybe, I, that was a story I heard somewhere. I mean, yeah. on the internet, it all it's all floating no, around. I, and, I, I got to work, uh, I was with the Blue Collar Tour, and I got to work all these really nice, I mean, I was doing, we were doing 7,000-seat hockey arenas in uh, Alaska. Seven th- we were in towns where there was 40,000 people. A fourth of the town was coming out to see us in these giant hockey arenas. And the, and the quality of the sound was so good that you could have nuance, you could you could whisper a joke and they'd hear you on the top level of the auditorium yeah. and you get these big laughs. I did the uh, Universal Amphitheater in uh, Los Angeles and uh, a lot of the Fox theaters around the country. Beautiful theaters and just so much fun to do. Yeah, how did you get hooked up with the blue collar? Because oh, I, I don't picture you. I mean, I've known you for a while and I those guys have that distinct southern draw. Well, they do. You're not that guy. No. How, how did you hook up with those a- guys? Actually, if you think about it, though, they're really rednecks. I'm blue collar. Yeah, no, I see that. But yeah. Because blue collar doesn't have the connotation of you're from the south and you're a redneck. Blue collar is a guy carries a lunch pail, you know? Oh, hell yeah. Fireman, yeah. policeman, not wearing a tie. I... Uh, was good friends with Bill Engvall, and I was writing for him, writing jokes for him. In fact, I got a gold record writing jokes for him. Nice. Yeah. And uh, this tour came along, and uh, he invited me on. So I went. I was on it for, I don't know, six months or so. And then they hired Larry the Cable Guy, which... 
to me, was a brilliant move. He was, uh, <clears throat> what happened when the tour started, Foxworthy was the, the main guy, of course. Yeah, yeah. He was the one selling the tickets. Well, by the time the tour ended, Foxworthy wasn't even headlining the show anymore. Larry the Cable uh-huh. Guy was. Okay. Because they couldn't follow him. Because that that Cable Guy stuff was just... A getter done, yeah. Oh, so it was just was... kicking ass at those places. Yeah. And you talk about wardrobes, people coming up. The audiences, and they're paying 70 bucks a ticket. And they would show up like they had just... And this isn't a shot at anybody. This is just the way the, the, the folks in the audience dress. They would show up in... Looks like they just slid off from under the car. Come on, honey, we're going to the concert. <laughs> or they were cutting the grass. Come on, put your ball. <laughs> no, not that one. Get your good ball cap on. <laughs> and they and they and the kids would show up because it was a very clean show. Yeah, hell yeah. But it, it always killed me seventy bucks, and they're dressed like Larry the Cable Guy. Yeah, wow. And so, so you were on that uh, for six months. Yeah, about that. All right. And what was what was that experience like? I mean, was uh, that's a pretty big deal? I mean, was that? I mean, I saw the the specials and whatnot because they had a movie, a blue collar. Yeah, they did. Uh, movie. I where, was out of there before that. Yeah. What was pretty good accommodations and all that? They took care oh, of you, or was oh, that? Yeah. Oh yeah, we stayed at the Ritz. And although, again, when you're traveling with Jeff and and the guys that are at the top level, it's a there's a pretty big gap. You know, like I got to the shows on uh, Southwest Airline. I'd take four flights to get to Cincinnati from yeah. St. Louis. Foxworthy had his own jet. I mean, he rented a, a Learjet or one of those private jets. So, you know, you, you see the same stage, same audience, but, you know, he's making a lot of money. I did. They, I made good money, I, I'll say that, but nowhere near, obviously. And that's fine. I mean, nobody would have paid a nickel to come see me at any of those venues anyway. Had I not been, had I not been hooked up with them, um, it was it was great. The audiences were were great, but they don't give you anything. It's not like oh, these are slam dunk audiences. Yeah. No, yeah. no. And if you suck in front of seven thousand people, brother, <laughs> it's mighty quiet. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't imagine how many. How quiet 7,000 people could get if you tell them a bad joke. But I didn't do that. I mean, I have the tapes of, I have tapes of all my shows. I taped everything. Yeah, it's fantastic. And how, how different is that playing a, a show like that, 7,000 versus a comedy club where there's what, 100 people maybe? No, there's probably 300 in a comedy club on a good night. Okay. Um, it's different. There's nothing better than a good comedy club. No, nothing. I mean, as far as a venue goes for a stand-up comedian to ply his craft or her craft, you can't beat the clubs because it's pretty much total freedom. You know, you can say whatever you want. That doesn't mean it's going to work, but you can pretty much get up there and say whatever you want, and it's okay. And if somebody doesn't like it, too bad. You paid your 15 bucks. Take a hike, son. The the big venues on it, and, and you play it different. You know your audience in the clubs is right there. They're right up in front of you. I mean, you could literally reach down the table and pull the guys drink off the table. Well, in the theaters, mm-hmm. you know you're maybe I don't know twenty yards from the front row. You're you're elevated above them. You can't see them. 
the spotlight is hitting you in the face. It's great. It's just, it's showbiz, man. You know, you're backstage, you come on, you walk that 15, 20 feet up to the microphone. They're, they're applauding for you. You get up there. The laughs, uh, it, it, and you're in these tiered auditoriums like the Fox, and the laughs literally cascade down onto you. It, it's like being at the bottom of a waterfall. You can feel the laughs coming down and the connection you're having with the audience and you hit and then they pour it back on you can't beat that that's uh that's pro you know that's that's a pinnacle yeah that's fantastic yeah and i work vegas and you know if you can't have fun doing those places you know um is there there different pressures from playing those big shows versus a, a, a comedy club and having that freedom no not for me i i mean by the time you're doing the big theaters, you know what you're doing. Yeah. I knew what I was doing. So there's no extra pressure. You just, you do your show. You just go out there and you do your show. And it's different technique. You know, when you're working the big, big stage, you got to remember there's people way up there. So you got to play the room. You got to look up. You got to walk the stage a little bit to the left. You got to walk a little bit to the right. You know, you might have to slow your pace down a little bit because the laughs are longer on the in the auditoriums. There, you get longer laughs. Just a different pace. Interesting. And when did you first get into comedy? Would did you directly just you know you wanted to be a stand up? Did you start as a joke writer? What's what's the evolution there? You know, you'll hear people talk when they were kids. They'll say, "I always wanted to be an actor." You know, I knew from the day one I was going to be a singer. Or you hear Bryce Harper. I was going to be a. He was on cover of Sports Illustrated. He's sixteen. He knew he was going to be a baseball player. Well, when I was a kid, I mean, it wasn't anything like I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. But I loved it. And the things that the only things I remember about TV basically as a kid. You know, we had one TV, black and white. You're with your parents. You watch what they want. So the variety shows. We saw a lot of variety Mm -hmm. shows. Well, I love the comedians. I mean, they they do four minutes. But I loved them. And I would literally, I had a notebook. (laughs) And I didn't write jokes, but I wrote them down. You know, I would write down jokes that I heard. And then I went out, I I grew up in South St. Louis where it's a lot of um, ranking on each other back and forth. You know, you got to really, you know, there's a lot of wise guys, smart, smart asses as it were. And I was really good at it. You know, just the quick comeback, the just tearing into people. <laughs> <laughs> I went and bought a book. This is funny. 2001 Insults for All Occasions. And I went through that book and I underlined the best ones. And I just kind of, you know, you, you by doing it a lot, you just learn how to insult people the right way. Yeah, and so, you learn the, uh, writing down the jokes, you learn the anatomy of a good joke. You do, you do. You know, learn, and, learn from the pros what works, what's, uh, and, and then you deconstruct that. That isn't why I did it. But, <laughs> but by doing it, you, you, by doing it, yeah, you are. You That's are what was happening. That. Yeah, it's even like, though you didn't know you were doing it. No, it's it. like a yeah. kid going on playing baseball. Yeah. If, if you play every day, eventually you're going to be pretty good. Yeah, yeah. You know? 
Yeah, that's cool, man. So, who who are some of the comedians you watched when you were younger? They were like, "Damn, this is uh, you know, this is somebody that inspired you. That just man. really it just had you cracking up on their living room floor." Almost every one of them. I mean, because when I was a kid, now I'm an old man. So when I was a kid, these were these guys on Ed Sullivan, and mm-hmm. and they were guys that a lot of them were pretty hacky, and they had just come from the Borst Belt. Or they were doing the cat skills. They were the they were the absolute tuxedo comedians. My mother in law, mother in law yeah. <laughs> jokes. I'm going home to mother. She's been living upstairs for the last twenty years. Is that you like know. a Henny Youngman type? Or I worked with Henny. Oh, did you? Henny was a different type. You know, he was just a one, two, three, four. It was just one joke, two joke, three joke, four. There was no my. This and then and a train of stuff. It was just going. But yeah. guys like Alan King, uh, who I always thought was kind of pretentious, he never made me laugh. But he was on all the time. All the time. He was one of those doing for mother-in-law jokes guys, and had that persona with the cigar and the, the tuxedo that was just so de rigueur in them days, you know. Uh, but I liked everybody. And then when the younger guys started coming along, you know, George Carlin, when he first came up, he was just totally different than than the George Carlin we, we got to know. He was he was kind of a hacky guy. He did a lot of uh, fake bits, like the, the hippy-dippy weatherman, where he was parodying weather and, yeah, yeah. and uh, things like that. And, and, he was, and he was very straight looking and... Uh, he was on all the time. He was okay. And then somebody told me one time, hey, have you ever seen George Carlin? I'm like, eh, he's all right. And they go, really? And they, and they, well, I didn't know he had changed. Yeah, yeah. And that was uh, Occupation Fool, I think, was the record that, that he did that. And l- loved it. And really learned a lot from him. And then Richard Pryor is another one. When he was a young guy on all these shows, he was different. He did a lot of physical stuff. I mean, he was always a great facial physical comedian. But it was more things like one of his bits was a baby being born. And there was no words in it. He was just coming <laughs> up through his hands. It was very, very funny. That's clever. Yeah. And and then, uh, you know, there were the teams, you know, Rowan and Martin, Alan and Rossi, and comedy teams. And, yeah, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Well, that was before my oh, time. Yeah, they yeah. were Dean... And Jerry, yeah. by the time I got around to I'll him. get you, yeah. But most of those guys I thought were hacks, too. But you just kind of, I just liked watching it, and you just accumulated all that stuff. That's so cool. That was, you know, and then through high school and all that, I was just a funny guy. Not the class clown. The class clown was a guy who sticks his handkerchief up his nose and pulls it out the other nostril. You know, that's <laughs> the class clown. I, I admired those guys. Yeah. <laughs> I admired them. <laughs> But I wasn't that. I was the wise, you know, the guy that was making the the cracks. Gotcha. And it it seems like, you know, comedians at one point and the Ed Sullivan days, it was more the jokes. Now it's more the the stories. And they're like putting it all out there. And like you get some jokes, but uh, there's some punchlines. But, uh, you know, it's very much storytelling and life type things. Yeah, and it bores the hell out of me when somebody gets up there and wants to talk about themselves over and over and it's just there's no jokes it's just uh hey what's the deal with starbucks charging eight dollars for a cup of coffee okay it's it's an observation 
So it's observational comedy is a well. Is... It's not a joke. Uh, since we're since we're on uh, podcast and I can say a few things, let, let me let me tell you a couple sure. that yeah. <clears throat> they will call this humor. Uh, Chelsea Handler, I believe it was, was doing a stand-up thing, and I looked in the paper the next day, and it said Chelsea Handler tells joke about Angelina about um, not Angelina Jolie. Who was the other one? Jennifer Aniston. Okay. No, no. She told the joke about Angelina Jolie because her and Jennifer Aniston are tight. Okay, yeah. And she, this is a couple years ago, she, she was mad about her and Brad Pitt. So here was the joke that was on the line. She's doing a concert, I don't know, maybe a thousand people in the room. Hey, and Angelina Jolie. What a fucking cunt. Whoa. That was <laughs> yeah, the that's, joke. That's not a, that's not a, that's just a straight out insult. That's not ribbing. Right. But here's the thing. The audience laughed. They didn't go nuts and fall out of their chairs. Yeah. But the audience laughs. What is, what in the fuck are they laughing at? They don't know Angelina Jolie. They don't know what she's like. That may have been a really, really hurtful thing. Again, if it's a joke and it gets a laugh, then it's kind of too bad, you know? Yeah, yeah. If somebody's making a joke about something you did, well, you did it. Or something about you, and it's a funny joke. But but just to say the other guy that, you know, and again, I don't I don't put this guy down. The guy that the guy got took Bill Cosby down, essentially. That comedian. Comedian. Parentheses. The guy may be very funny, but here was the joke that took Bill Cosby down. Hey, Bill Cosby, you're nothing but a fucking rape rapist. Boom. Yeah, there's there, there's no play with well, that. Yeah, it's just people it's wanna, more commentary. Yeah, they want to get up on stage and air out their gripes. And now, of course, everybody is, uh, at least in that ilk, most of the comedians are, are, are anti-Trump and they're very liberal. So, you know, they're doing the Jon Stewart and the Stephen Colbert type of attack stuff. If you got a joke on it, that's fine. Again, another one is that I am anti, 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 anti Donald Trump and his shit. I don't think it's fair to, uh, I don't think it's fair to play below the belt. Like that woman who just got a lot of juice from being at the Washington or the White House press corps. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't hear it, but the thing is, what was it, Sarah? Um, you know what? I, I don't recall her well, name. Well, there was the, the the press woman. Yeah, no, I know who you're talking about, but yeah, I can't remember her name. Huckabee, Sarah Sanders. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, Sarah yeah, Sanders, yeah, Huckabee. yeah. The woman said, "Uh, boy, she's sure ugly." Okay, maybe she is. Maybe that's a fact. But people are saying she's telling the truth. For me to say, hey, Ken, there's a microphone in front of you, that's a fact. That's not the truth. Yeah, yeah. That's like saying I can explain love by saying I like you. It, it's If you're going to do comedy, there has got to be a laugh at the end of it. And if there isn't, then you're just somebody standing up there talking to the crowd. And I don't think all the... I know there's some great young comedians out there. That trend, though, of just talking is 
I find some of the funniest stuff, the Red Fox comedy back in the day, the play on words and, you know, the things where you can't get away with just straight out saying something. So you have to work around it and create that joke. To me, that's super clever. And, you know, I find that to be brilliant. Well, that's comedy is among all is surprise. If I see the joke coming, what am I going to do? I'm going to groan. I'm going to go, yeah. Or when the punchline comes in, I'm going to say it along with you. You know, I used to do that with my kids all the time and my wife. Something on TV, and I'd, I'd say, that, I'd go, here it comes. Here it comes. Coming down the road. Are you ready? Are you ready? Boom. And I'd say the punchline along with it. And I bet they hate watching, t- they hate it watching TV that? with you. Well, they, I, actually, I taught them. My oh, girls, or maybe my they enjoy it. My girls are now in their 20s and early 30s, and they now they, they go, our dad taught us how to listen to that stuff, you know. So you don't. People think something's funny; they don't even know. They're laughing because the guy next to them's laughing. Yeah, yeah. They'll walk out of your room going, "I didn't think that was that good." That's the truth. They'll laugh all night and then walk out. How was? Eh, he was all right. So, yeah. Speaking of funny, so you um, you were part of the whole KC gang back in the day, creating parodies and yeah, I, and I, writing jokes and all that. So tell me about that. I just talked to Smash recently, and he gave good me man. Good, gave good you good friend. kudos. I should have uh, pulled the comment and give you that, but he just talked about your brilliance and well, and whatnot. I uh, I was with the Morning Zoo, and it, not not officially, and and what happened was in those days in the eighties. They would f- frequently have comedians on the air, you know, because it was a good uh, segment. People like comedy was really the clubs were 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 breaking. There was a lot of really good famous comedians coming. They weren't famous then, but they were coming in. And Casey would have me on, and I was just good at it. I mean, I'm just somebody who likes to talk, and I was friendly, and uh I didn't. I didn't freeze up, or I didn't say, "Hey, I don't want to do my jokes on the air because, uh, you know, co- comedians would come on and say, I don't want to do the jokes I'm going to do tonight.' Why? What do you think your whole audience is listening to you now? So they fired these two guys from Atlanta, and they were taking a trip to Jamaica, <clears throat> and they had a seat open. And Johnny Eulett calls me up. He goes, Hockey, you've done so much good stuff for us. We want to take you to Jamaica with us. And I went, all right. (laughs) So we had a wonderful time. We had a wonderful time. And on the car car ride back where we were, we had like a three-hour trip through Jamaica to get from where we were to the airport. Me and Eulett were sitting there talking. And I just got this thing in radio that's I could do this it would be good I had my I was growing my family I wanted to be home so that's kind of how it came in I put I pitched it to him and so really what I was I, I was a, a writer producer and my job was to make them look good my job was to write bits for them with them I mean I wrote a lot for myself too I did all the characters but I would give them parts, you know, and I would write things for them. Truck driving elementary school or uh, uh, Knights in White Castle. I gave everybody a part in that. and uh, Just things like that that would make them look good. You know, I, I had a character, Manny Tannenbaum, the lawyer 
Casey's lawyer. Manny Tannenbaum, I put my ass on the line for you. <laughs> that was his tag. So we just did a lot of stuff with Manny Tannenbaum. And I would do all these commercials. And I would have those guys do, Man, Smash would do, Manny Tannenbaum for office, any office. And then we'd do the commercial, Manny Tannenbaum. Or I'd give them parts and this stuff. So that was my whole job, was to give them material, give them stuff to do. Yeah. So in this day and age, that's called a content creator. Is it? <laughs> I think, yeah, you're putting content out there. Well, I would just come to, I'd come in in the morning, like, uh, and I'd hear them, and I'd hear what was going on, and I'd try to... You know, sometimes you, you prepare a bit, and other times you write, you know, see your pants. Uh, like, they, this guy uh, came back from Vietnam, and he had, this guy had been in a prisoner, and he had been in a two-by-three-foot cell for like six years. Whew. I mean, yeah. and they brought him back, and they were interviewing him. And, I, and so uh, I, I created a character who was a guy that called in. Listen, I'd like to give that guy a job. A wonderful man. He's what, what, what kind of job? Working in a photo mat. I figure if he can sit in one of those things for six years, he can do a six-hour shift in a photo mat standing on his head. So we would do <laughs> stuff like that, you know. Or, or there was a shooting at uh, Northwest Plaza. And these kids were cruising. were cruising. So I, call, I was the security guard, you know, and I was like an 85-year-old man. And just, he was just, them kids come by one time, they get the look. Second time, I fire one across the bow. Because he was shooting at him. Third time, the tires go out. And so they're just interviewing this guy, you know. And so that's the kind of stuff we would do. Just, yeah, so it's a di different comedy than nowadays. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing on the radio. I, radio nowadays is not at all. I mean, it, it just changed, and, and that's just... Well, it's even the comedy and subject matter. Now we, we have all these shootings on a regular basis. When then, I, I well, mean, this I, wasn't a, a murder. You know, obviously you didn't hit on uh, murders or something like that. Yeah, just but, people popping shots or something. At the, yeah, it was just know. a funny, it was a funny story. You know, the old man was shooting stuff. He was an old guard. So I just <laughs> the 85 year old. But the thing is, with radio people, for the most part, they got the voice, they got the chops, they can talk about music. But they don't get comedy. They think, I have a good friend, Gary Bennett. He was, in fact, he's the one who gave me the name Manny Tannenbaum. But he worked the station. He was an engineer and he recorded a lot of stuff that I did. And he'd go, remember, there's no room for comedy on radio. Because they're constantly doing stuff to us. But they will do, here's a good example of, of contemporary radio. There was a, just these little news stories come across, and you'll hear it on two stations. A guy was in an airplane. He was drunk, and he stood up. This is happening the other day. And he, instead of going to the bathroom, he just peed on the chair next to him with a person sitting there. He just stood up and peed, okay? It's a stupid <laughs> story, but it's one of those things like, oh, we're talking about some guy pulling it out and peeing. Oh, that's a funny bit. So all they do is talk about it. And then somebody will go, oh, don't you think you could have made it back to the bathroom? And everybody laughs. And it's like, 
there's no humor there. What I would have done is write a bit about that guy, you know. Take well, it out of well, the Well, there's, I think, less, produc- less production these days. So it's, uh, you know, I don't know if anybody's writing parody songs or... or well, I'll tell you what. Or writing the bits or creating the characters or doing things like that. We had it down, man. I mean, these engineers, I had to work in between their schedule because what they were doing, the engineers... They're back there all day recording commercials. I mean, they're doing the voice themselves. They're putting programming together. They're doing all kinds of stuff. So I'd have to go in and go, Ed, you got five minutes? Yeah, come on, let's record this. And we'd knock it out in five minutes. One take Hawksley, man. I'd get into those things because you just didn't have the time. Uh, They didn't have the time to do it. Which is fine with me because I don't like to sit there and beat something to death anyway. Let's get the joke out, put it on the air. Let's move on. Nice. Speaking of, of bits or, or just great comedic elements, is one that I love that's just amazing. Don the Legend. Don the Legend. Yeah, that's his, uh, let's, let's talk about Don and how this, this whole thing evolved and who found him. And, uh, Hewlett. Hewlett John, found him? John Hewlett. John Hewlett is a golfer. And he went to, the, I don't know where the, where the course was, but Ledge, as we call him, was a, like a groundskeeper. It must not have been a real fancy course. He was a groundskeeper, <laughs> and he gave lessons and stuff. He was a decent golfer. <laughs> and Hewlett would see him at there, and he, and he was like, because he said, Ledge would just be cussing his head off to these people. Come on, honey, get your fucking head up and do this, you know, right? Now, you get that ball, you got to get the goddamn ball down the thing. And Hewlett said it was just so funny. And, you know, <laughs> you know Ledge is stuck like this and everything like that. Let me tell you one time, don't you know? Don't you know your daddy? Down, your your daddy, daddy going to tell you that down the ledge in here. So uh, they had him on. And I hit it off with him. He's a great guy. He was a really nice man. And just the salt of the earth. So uh, they had him on all the time. And I just, you know... There was all those songs out there about Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the Glen, just with those men singing it. Yeah, yeah. So I thought, Ledge has got to have a uh, theme song. So I just thought, well, we got to have a lot of cussing in it, and he loves to drink, you know, Bloody Marys. Your daddy had another Bloody Mary, don't you know? And he was a hound dog and hell raising, shit stomping, ball busting, ass kicking, bullshit and bad motherfucker was he. <laughs> so I was just sitting there trying to. I had the rhythm. I know. So he had to be all these things. So I'm sitting there writing bad, ball busting, ass kicking, bullshit, all those bum bada bum bada bum. And then uh, took it into the studio. And actually, two buds of mine, Dan Chopin, and Vince Corkery. Chopin's a comedian. Vince is a musician. Chopin's also a good musician in his own right. And he played the drums. I wanted that march. And then Vince played the bass, upright bass. Boom, 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 boom. And we went in and, and actually in Chopin's studio, or Vince's studio, studio like this, and we laid down the basic tracks and then I took it to Keishi, and uh, and they fixed it up. But I did all the Smash did one of the voices, uh, one of the sing. I can hear him. I can hear him sing. But I did the the rest of them, and 
the the favorite. <laughs> this just makes me laugh. I don't know why. It's great. But the last part good. of it, how the good bad motherfucker was he? And and I there was that high note he. And we had done it, and I go, that's got it. So I went in and recorded it separately. And it still makes me laugh when I, I don't know why. It's, it's just, a great bit, man. It holds it up. Fits. I love it. I mean, the very ending that, The best classic rock and the best new rock, KC95, Sunshine Today, high of 85, 71 downtown. We're broadcasting live from French's Sports Bar. Don the legend, what a bad mother is he. Don the legend, and we got him right here on KC. Yes, Don the Legend here. It's gonna be a little quick one out here, folks. On all of you people go out there and you play four, five, number six people, whatever don't make any difference, but you get within a foot of the cup, eighteen inches of the cup. Oh, that's good. Give it to me. Well, there's no such thing as a gimme. So do not give them a to them. Don't pick the son of a up. When you hear that son of a say, then you know, then you know that the is over with. And then you count your score. Because gimme's is for p's. They can't handle this game, don't you understand? Because I tell you what, nine out of ten times, if you don't give them that putt, They'll miss the son of a nine out of ten times, and you know that well as I do. That's all. Don the legend, and the hound dog in hell raises stopping ballbusting ass kicking bull getting bad mother is he. It just makes me laugh. It just because I know I just remember. I mean, it's 1990 we did that. But. Yeah, I didn't catch it until after I got out of the Navy in in '95, I think it was, and listening to the morning show drive when I actually had a job. You know, full time yeah. job while I was going to, or part time job while I was going to school at Anheuser Busch, and yeah, every morning listening to the the morning show and and uh, Don the Legend was one of my favorite bits. Well, he, he was fantastic. He was great. He would just make these f- fabulous mispronunciations, like the golfer Sevy, what's his name, Sevy Bella. I do not know. Sevy was he's a Spanish guy. S e v e. Ballestino. And and Ledge called him. Steve Bellarino, <laughs> and he wasn't joking. Yeah. So another bit, I, I thought, well, you know, he, I like the contrast, you know. So I got these records of Shakespeare, English actors and Shakespeare, and I got Romeo and Juliet. And I had Ledge, <laughs> I cut it up. So, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? I'm right over here, baby. Where you look? Can't you see me? I'm over here, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so I had lads doing all the Romeo's lines. Juliet, get your ass down here, baby. You know, and I had him cussing and yeah. what we could do. Ass, I think you could. I think you could. But see but it. you bleeped a lot, which which I think is funny. We had to. But I, I find that to be funny, you know, when you're bleeping it. Well, we we realized that we would laugh about this. The word fuck. The only thing in radio that's bad about that is, uh. So you could put, fk. it was all right. You just couldn't put the uh in there. <laughs> so we would do that. Yeah. That motherfucker is he. So you could. So uh, you're hearing it anyway, but. It, it, well, I wanted to make sure you knew what it was. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? It's funny, though. And so, It is. And, yeah. and so you're, uh, you're just going after the. But sometimes that's, that's part of the part of what makes it funny because you're bending the rules right and you're coming and it's like what, what do they just get away with 
well, and that's, that's a, part of the comedy to me. Like, oh, what do they just do? Versus just being able to throw it straight out. Well, there. that's another element. I said surprise before. Another element yeah. of comedy is exaggeration. Yeah, yeah. You have to exaggerate something. I don't know the terminology. I just oh I, no, I, I know the feeling. So that's why it's good to have you here. No, I taught, so too. I can I, learn that shit. I actually taught this stuff in college at university, Webster University, yeah, yeah. Washington University. After I retired, but. I love it. I mean, I just love the structural stuff. It's too bad I'm out of it, but what are you going to do? And maybe make a comeback. No. No? No, they're not hiring. You know, I listened. One of the tapes I sent you, I was listening to it. And I was laughing. I thought it was really good. And it was from an open mic night to Funny Bone. And it was one of the last gigs I ever did there. Because the guy that runs a place won't hire me. And he won't hire any of us older guys, hardly. And I listened to, it was one of the last tapes I did, and I killed. And it was new material. I was working on new material. And I just couldn't believe after listening to it again the other night, I was like, he, he stopped booking me after this, after this thing. So uh, there's just nothing. I mean, after 2008, it just got to be so horrible. There was nothing. There's just nothing out there. The clubs are different. They don't work. You don't do six shows or a week, eight shows a week anymore, so you can't make any money, you know. Yeah, uh, the changing of times. Well, and it's everywhere. You know, you have, uh, with everything on YouTube and all that, it's just the content is saturated. So then people are like, well, why go out when I can watch Netflix and watch a comedy special? Well, a lot of the things that are happening now, too, it, due to the um, – all these uh, social media is that what they're doing is they're doing this in, in acting too. You know, I did some movies. What they'll do is now, if you go in for an audition, they will say, how many friends you got? How many, I mean, Facebook, they call them friends. What do they call them on Twitter? Followers? Yeah, followers. Okay, how many followers yeah. you got? If you got a shitload of followers, they'll hire you. And if you don't, they won't. That's become the criteria. Yeah. A guy put out a, a club manager in uh, club owner in Atlanta put something out on Facebook recently. He said, too bad, you guys. All you guys that spent all those years sleeping in shitty rooms and stuff like that, too bad. If you don't have this, we're not going to hire you. Because the idea is that you have your own audience. Sure, yeah. So now if you got... And a lot of a lot of comedians have always been like that. They're workers. They're business guys, you know. So every time they go into, they'll do that, man. They'll just get followers. They'll have put cards on the tables on their yeah, own. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and now that's, uh, I guess it can really pay dividends if your people come out. Yeah, and that's a key because and and you buy followers these days, so. I'm, you know, I don't have, but somebody could have 365,000 followers. Right. And granted, you're only getting a small percentage to that venue. How many of those followers are in that town? Exactly. I mean, so it's 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 kind of skewed. But you it's, work. That's what I'm saying. These yeah. guys work. The towns are on a circuit. Yeah. So they're in St. Louis. They're in Cincinnati. They're in Chicago. So every, and they're in the same clubs. Yeah. And so, and they work it on their Facebook. They work it on Twitter and are constantly saying, hey, come and see me here. Come, which I find annoying, but. I get it. What's well, a good tool? I mean, I do it. You know, you have to try, and I'm, uh, hopefully they're putting out good content. Well, 
to to get those followers, and then they can they they have something worth seeing. It's not music, guys. It's not like what you do, where you're promoting something. These are guys that are coming into your town. They're going to do the same jokes, uh, and they're asking you to keep coming and seeing them. Keep coming and seeing them. It's like saying, "Well, I'm gonna. I made a movie. Let's go see it ten times." It's like I saw it. You know, I, 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 you advertise, I showed up. Quit advertising to me. <laughs> I showed up. I've already done it. Gotcha. Well, let's look at, uh, so, so you raised three daughters. That's right. So you were the only male in a household of four women. How, how was that? Well, as I used to say, I used to, so I just peed in the yard. It was great. It was great. My wife and I raised three beautiful daughters, uh, and you're all a great family. I've loved interacting with your family yeah. over the years, and uh, I met Terry at alumni events. That's and right. Just great people, you know. So that's um, well, that's the most important thing in my life. Always was. It's why I never, I was never a road dog. But really, that's my family is probably the main reason that I got into radio, that I got into TV, that I got into movies, because I didn't have to be on the road. You know, being in some stupid. I mean, I would say being in St. Louis was stupid if I didn't live here. You know, I like living here. But yeah. if you're on the road and you're staying out at an apartment in some condo in South County or some condo in West County, it's stupid. You know, you're living for the shows. And a lot of guys like that. A lot of guys love it. They don't want to be home. They want to get out and do it. I hated it. I mean, I was bored. You know, you, except for your show times, there's nothing to do. So my family... Uh, I always I, I knew that from the get go. Terry and I, when we got married, said we're going to have kids. We're going to raise a family. Yeah. So no no regrets not having a son. No. As a matter of fact, first first two were girls, and it was great. And then the third one was coming, and Terry's going, "This one's a boy. This one's going to be a boy." And I actually one day. I just started, like, we were talking about it, and I just started kind of shaking and crying because I was so used to raising little girls that I thought, wow, this is really going to be something different. Although I had helped raise my nephews, and so I was, you know, yeah, okay, I worked yeah, at a boy's yeah. home, so I was used to little boys. It wasn't that. It was just, man, this is going to be different. Well, third one was a girl, so I didn't have to worry about it. No, I never had... In fact, I don't know. If I had a son, he'd probably be a knucklehead, you know. <laughs> you know, my daughters are great. A son, he'd probably be like me and just be a shithead and make 10 billion mistakes along the way. And, yeah. And, and how's your oldest daughter, Craig Jr., doing? Craig Jr. I love that joke. That's a, <laughs> that's a great joke. Yeah. Because that was it. People, you know, you, that's real. those are reality jokes. People say, yeah. uh, well, don't you... Don't you wish you had a son? It's like, you know, I was talking to my my oldest daughter, Craig Jr., about that. And <laughs> you got to just throw those, you just got to gotta throw those jokes away when you're doing kind of, eh, Craig Jr. Uh, but it's a surprise. People don't see that coming. And all the girls are doing well? Yeah, they are. The youngest one got married in October. The middle one just got engaged the other day. The oldest one's living out in uh, California, in Pasadena. Her and her boyfriend live out there. She's in uh, television. Yeah, what's she? What is she doing? 
she's uh, like associate producer on reality shows. Okay. So she likes it out there. Yeah, and that's another genre when we talk about followers because uh, I'm a friend of mine is in development. He's uh, was a guest on this podcast, and he had mentioned that that's a, another thing. You may have the greatest subject, just the most compelling subject, but they'll have less followers than somebody that's a knucklehead that really doesn't have anything to say, that's not interesting, but is apparently interesting to some people, and then that's the show that'll get greenlit. And boy, there's no accounting for taste. Is there, I mean, yeah. uh, people like stuff that I'll just shake my head. Yeah, and it's different. I mean, and as I get older, my sensibilities change, but I, I think I was always into something that was more clever or thoughtful or mindful. And uh, in the work that I put out, I want it to be a, more than just what's on the surface. So hopefully I'm accomplishing that with, with this podcast and other things. But um, Well, I think it's important <clears throat> the way you've gone about it, too. You know, you go to school, you've learned the equipment, you've done a lot of stuff in front of the camera, behind the camera, you've worked as a, <clears throat> you know, I know you're always doing location yeah, you know, uh, searching yeah, for people, which is all different areas, which yeah. is all part. You use our yeah. house for a location. Yeah, time, yeah, yeah. Which is all part of the business. Um, if you don't do that in the business or any business, you you just won't go anywhere. And I hope the young people coming out of school today uh, can get their heads around that. That just because you can learn how to operate a piece of electronic equipment in five minutes, which you can. It doesn't mean you know how to operate it. Yeah. It doesn't mean, you know, you, you can have a nice setup like this in, in your studio if you don't have any content. Yeah. You but, know. but why are you operating that piece of equipment? What's the why? And then that's, that's the important part to that. Well, so many <clears throat> want to be filmmakers today, and which is fine. The, one of the problems that they're running into, and they don't realize it, is that the equipment is so good that they don't have to really spend as much time as they should, or as they need to, they're never going to work, lighting it and writing the film. So, And I, I made that mistake too, and I, I'm, I'm starting to uh, rework a screenplay that just wasn't tight. Well, and I have Don the Legend in it, so I want to keep him, but I'm going to throw out well, so it. much. You got to know what, what's got to yeah. go, but these guys don't get it in the fact that I've done some stuff for these things, and they'll keep going like this. And they know I'm a professional. They keep going, come here, great. Look at this shot. They want me to look through the lens. And, and it's okay, well, with the red camera, <clears throat> everything looks good. You know, these new digital cameras, everything looks yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. So it looks great, but they don't know how to edit. There's no content. So you got a great looking piece of shit laying there on the table. And timing's everything. And there's the and, and they make the posters and they do all the trimmings of the movie. You know. Advertise it and promote it and get pictures and posters and put a streamer and a flash thing on what do they call it? A splash reel? Uh sizzle reel. Sizzle reel. Yeah. That shows all the good stuff on it. Yeah. So they have the trimmings, but the turkey is overcooked and dry. and They forgot to bring the turkey. Ah. You know. Uh, Get off my lawn, you kids. <laughs> <laughs> There's just so much. Yeah. And and this, the, the thing is, people will this is what gets me about it. As somebody who writes, <clears throat> I, I'm a joke writer, so I'm not saying I'm a novelist or an 
essayist or anything, but as somebody who writes and has written for 40 years, it's really not as easy as putting words down on a paper. There's just so much to learn. And so when people come up to me and I know they've been an actor for a couple years and all of a sudden they go, making a movie, I wrote it. You wrote it? How many movies, how many, what have you written except a email in the last 40 years? Nothing. So they, they do a cookie cutter movie, you know. It's just they're taking basic plot things from mm-hmm. 10 other things. Nobody knows how to direct it. You know, yeah, but I think it's okay to write it, but also, are you rewriting it? Are well, you rewriting it? Are you rewriting that's it exactly until it's right? And, and I've made this mistake in the past as well, where it was like I'm so eager because filmmaking is writing is not as sexy as filmmaking no. and directing. So you want to get out there, and and that's the mistake I made with this wrestling mockumentary. And I was talking to my friend Todd Zaniga about this. Adrian Todd Zaniga, check out his episode. Shameless plug, but. uh I was so eager, but before I had a tight script, I'm thinking scheduling, I'm budgeting, and I'm not focused on the writing. So now when I look at it, it's just like, would I like to make this thing at some point? Yes. But you know what? Until that script is bulletproof, until it's really good, uh, then you know what? I'm not going to think about making it. So so I'm, I'm focused. My focus is different since I have produced some things and I have content yeah. uh now i want to focus on being a good writer and and trying that exercising that muscle i, I don't know if i'll get there but i'm gonna uh, well, every, I'm, I'm gonna try every discipline has its own um sexiness as you said i <clears throat> i wouldn't want to direct anything i i just that's not something to me i'd be in a brown films and it's just like Oh, those guys are here 9,000 hours a day. And I just, you know, it's just so much crap. Writing, if if people don't like it, if, if, if it's a chore, it's not going to be good. I guarantee you it's not going to be any good. Oh, I love to, I hate to write, but I love having written. That's the biggest bunch of crap that ever, that, mm-hmm. that's for somebody who's not a writer. Because if you're a writer, there's a lot of sexiness to it. But it's it's so personal that when you're sitting at that computer, whatever you write with, and you know where you're going, and then all of a sudden it takes over. A punchline comes in that you didn't you didn't see it coming, and it's like, oh, there it is. I can't tell you how many times I've said that to myself. There it is. I, I don't know where it came from, but the fact I was having so much fun working on it i mean i wasn't going this sucks like this sucks i hate this yeah. <laughs> and i've been there but now i'm starting to embrace it I'll and i like for the stories hours. going through my head when i'm just hanging yeah. out so i'll yeah. sit there for five hours and and it's gone boom on the other hand it doesn't mean that the writing's good <laughs> you know because you yeah. look back and you're talking about rewrites and yeah it takes time oh if you don't it's an evolution well writing is rewriting and if you don't know that then don't even sit down. Don't even pick up your pen or open up your computer or your typewriter or whatever you use. <clears throat> find out how you do it. And if you want to make movies, find out the thing you're good at that you want to do. If you want to make a movie and you want to be the producer, okay. But that means you're getting people to do the stuff. You're getting a writer. You're getting a cinematographer. You're getting an editor. You're going to help hire the 
And if you don't like it, uh, you're just not going to have anything. Good advice. Good advice. Let's go for uh, some rapid-fire questions. What, what advice would you give yourself at the age of 21? Boy. I... <clears throat> Man, I did, I did what I told myself to do. My advice was just go do it, you know? I hated working, regular jobs. As a standard comedian, I'd have put in 900 hours a week. You know what I mean? It's not your lazy guy. I, I wish I would have had help. I wish I'd have had, and I looked for it. I wish I'd have had guys like me now to help me write then to give me advice that it took me 40 years to learn the hard way yeah you know and i don't recommend that learning things the hard way but you want to be a joke writer you live in st louis missouri there's just not that many places to go turns out i was the only one <laughs> so <clears throat> now i'm somebody that can help other people with it so nice I would have given myself that advice. Yeah, yeah, you can be a mentor now. You can be the the old wise. Uh, no, man. no, nobody wants it. Yeah, I'm serious. I some guys called me up. They had a little club down in, on Cherokee Street, and I went and watched them. And God love them. They they really are dedicated to what they want to do, but they're just not any good. They're just not any good. They're just not good comedians, and they're just not. They're terrible writers. So I went down and talked to them, and they, they asked me to come down and look, and I said, well, <clears throat> do, you, do you write your jokes? And there was like three or four of them there, and they no, no, man, I, everything's in my head. Okay. Uh, strike one, and strike two, and strike three, because if it's on your head, it's not any good. If you're not writing, you're not any good. You're not disciplined. You're not doing any of this stuff. So I suggested to them, I go, you guys have this little group of people down here why don't you find out who can do what if you can't write but you love to perform and this guy's a good writer but he's a terrible performer why don't you get together sit down and say hey you know let's work as a team you know work out and they looked at me like I was crazy I mean they looked at me like I had told them to quit comedy to tear down the building to strip themselves of all remnants of comedy. They <clears throat> didn't want that. They want to write their own stuff. Well, but you're not doing it. So how do you mentor somebody that's mm. stupid? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had a kid say to me one time, I always wanted to get this young girl, cute little girl, used to attend bar at this place. I always want to get into being a model. I go, great. I go, you know, all you got to do is... Uh, Go to one of these photographers, get your I hate to have my picture taken. Okay, you want to be a model and you hate to have your picture taken. What the hell do you think models do all day? <laughs> so, yeah. How no do you doubt. measure that? Yeah, you're right. You're I was right. teaching a script writing class at Webster University. We were doing a scene or doing a section about doing speeches in the movie. Now, I didn't mean like four score and seven years ago. I meant when somebody's got a long piece of dialogue that's you know, Alec yeah. Baldwin and, and Glenn Gary, Glenn, Glenn Gary, Ross, Glenn Ross. Or of course, the classic one is I'm top mad as hell and I'm not going yeah. to take this anymore. 
Yeah, Network. Network. So, Although I haven't even seen Network. I have to, oh, I have to watch it. You do. Yeah. You do. But this kid in the class, she says, uh, well, I'm never going to write a speech in my... I'm never going to put a speech in my scripts. It's like, okay. Oh, Sorkin. Okay, so one of the greatest and then, yeah. monologues. Did you, you see the... Uh, oh, no, well, I can't think. Got, the newsroom with he, Jeff Daniels yeah. that starts that series. Oh, my right. God. Then that's amazing. You, then you have to go see Network, and you got to go yeah. see the Americanization of Emily... Patty Chievsky. That's where Aaron Sorkin got his stuff. Nice. You, you watch Patty, listen to Patty Chievsky's stuff. Network. It's great. Yeah, I mean, I know of it. I have it uh, on DVD, but watch I just, it. yeah. But again, I to say, up, I'm but... going to write a script, and there's going to be no time ever, no matter if I'm doing zombie apocalypse, there's going to be no time ever when the leader is going to go, okay, everybody, listen up. You know, yeah. you're never going to write any kind of extended dialogue. I called it a speech. You know, you've now, effed up, man. Oh, man, now it's stuck you in his kids. you get your terminology, professor. I'm telling you, now it's stuck <laughs> in his kid's mind. I can't write a speech. Who does he think I am, Abraham Lincoln? Yeah. And I'm kind of like my, uh, I'm kind of like Mike Shannon at times, where I I throw something out there, I know what I'm saying, but it like makes no sense, and hopefully people pick up on it. But love Mike Shannon. He's, He's great, brilliant. You know, he's the, brilliant in his own way. That's his. He lives. He put, you know, his energy, his just, he's Mike Shannon. You got to love him. Well, he's another guy. I do impression of him, of course. And, and, and exaggeration is so important with him. Yeah. And, <laughs> well, see, there's so many guys, so many jocks yeah. that do that. They'll go, hey, let's just sit there. And they just do that. But the thing they don't do is they don't make it funny. See, I wrote jokes. That That's the difference. If you're going to do an impression, you have to exaggerate that person and you have to make them say things that are, they're not out of their wheelhouse. It's things they would say. But I would listen to Shannon on the radio and, and things would pop into my mind. Pop into my mind. Like one of the ones I did is he, you know, you can just hear him doing it. There's a drive to deep right field. Curving foul, curving foul, gonna go foul. Nope, home run, Cardinals win. You know, it's just one of those things where he just uh, might do that. Think it's it's a foul ball. Nope. Yeah, yeah he's great. I love Mike Shannon. Um, so, so looking at like any particular comedians that if, if if I was a young comedian coming up and said, hey, who do you recommend I take a look at to Gary to Shandling learn from Shandling? Yeah, Gary Shandling to me. Uh, if you want to see a really great career beginning, go on YouTube and look up Gary Shandling's first appearance on The Tonight Show. It's, it's like the guy was the consummate pro f- right out of the box. Now, of course, he had been working on his craft at clubs and learning his stuff. Great writer. I don't know if he wrote his, all of his own stuff, but well, there is a documentary, and a Judd Apatow right, directed right. it. And I haven't he seen wrote it. A, I haven't seen it either, so I'm going to put that on my list as well. So, uh, and I know you're an avid reader. What? What? Uh, is there a book? And it doesn't have to be a comedy book, but what book do you most recommend to to someone to read? You mean a comedy book? No, no, it could be any book. We're just looking at because you, you. I mean, you're an avid reader, yeah, correct? Did I get yeah, that right? Yeah, I, I read a lot of stuff that I. Don't think people would read. Like uh, I'm reading a lot of the classics. Uh, I just finished uh, second time the Count of Monte Cristo. It's just a great book. 
but you tell people, oh, it's too thick. It's like, well, all right, just pretend you're reading 10 books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's one uh, by a guy named Raph. I can't, I can't even speak. I'm, I'm a consonant pro. But uh, Ralph Ellison. There's oh, a yeah. book called The Invisible, Invisible Man. Man. Yeah. I've read that like two or three times. And, and I caught that when I and was in the Navy. it's not The Invisible yeah. Man. It's Invisible, Invisible Man. Man. And it's, uh, it's amazing. So yeah. it's uh, post-Civil uh, War. Or no, it's like 30s. I think it's like 20s or the 30s, uh, Jim Crow era. Right. And just, I, I had took a literature class, like a correspondence course when I was in the Navy. And just that, Martin Eden and a few other of the classics said, wow. And it was, That's Jack London, right? Yeah, yeah, amazing yeah. course. Well, those Jack um, London books, I grew up, Call of the Wild and White Fang. But, <clears throat> you know, I've been reading like Don Quixote and the, the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid and... Uh, um. Metamorphosis by Ovid, the the Roman poet, and a uh, lot of lot of Greek mythology, lot of lot of uh, esoteric philosophy, not philosophy, theology, the not religion, just different schools of thought. So mm-hmm. I, I read a lot of that stuff. That's cool. So if you were on, uh, you know, if you're on death row, what would be your last meal? Boy, <laughs> you know what? I have when I was 20 years ago. This is stupid. I got Bell's palsy, and it fucking killed my taste buds, and it oh, killed my my smell. So my last meal could be anything. Gotcha. You know what I mean? It just wouldn't. It could be anything. Give me a good bologna sandwich with mustard, <laughs> beef bologna. All right, all right. What was the most indulgent purchase you ever made? Oh, boy, I'm not good at that because I'm a, like I said, I'm a blue-collar kid, and I don't think I ever put credit down on anything. Most indulgent purchase I ever made. Jeez, it would just be nothing. Let's see. uh, (laughs) Shit. Yeah, I mean, I'm not really that. I mean, the most indulgent purchase I make is like, oh, hey, I just dropped 13 grand on a short film. You know, that's like, yeah, that was... You know, it was a good I, investment in myself. But, I uh, bought, I bought a couple of programs for study that are like four or five grand. I don't know if it was a waste of fucking money. I'll say that. I don't know if it was indulgent, but it was a waste. Sure, yeah, that's four or five grand on a course. That's, yeah, that's pretty indulgent. And I didn't get anything out of it. That's yeah. the thing. Or you think it's going to be the, oh, yeah. the, the marketing. The only oh, the yeah. only person making money from that her. course is the guy that wrote that's it. That's right. Oh <laughs> boy, did I and then I bite. You know. Yeah. So although there's a there's this thing called Masterclass that I signed up for. It's not that expensive, and there's an Aaron Sorkin, and I've learned a bit from that. I just need to sit down with that again. That's pretty good. I dig that. Uh, what about um, if you had one song that best defines you, you know, if you were creating a soundtrack of your life, wow. you know, yeah, I'm hitting you with some hard ones. You are. I don't I, think I can answer some of these. Because I, uh, like, I like music. Uh, well, yeah, I do. I like music. And, and I, when I say I like music, I'm not, <clears throat> not the contemporary music. I, I don't even know uh, who's who, who's what. That's okay. Well, when I say contemporary, I mean like, the pop stuff, the real poppy, poppy, poppy gotcha. stuff. Uh, new new artists coming out yeah, that are really good. I, I like a, a song. That, a song that would do what? That just, you know, soundtrack to your life that was maybe your, your theme song. What best defines you? 
like Don the Legend has his theme song, you know, so that, that's a pretty good definition of him. But uh, what what song would it be? I don't know. What would be a good song for you? Fuck, that's a, that's a hard question. You know, it would have to be a Beatles song because I'm such a consummate Beatles fan. I don't know. It could be any one of them. How about two of us by them? You know, talking about me and your, me and the woman. You know, just yeah. about two people just yeah. on our way back home. I don't know. That, that'd yeah, be that's good, all right. That'd be a good one. Yeah, cool. All right, I'm going to check that out. I don't know that song. Oh, uh, it's on the Let It Be album. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got to go back. I mean, Beatles have so many great songs <clears throat> that I just... Can't remember titles. I'm sure I know the song. I remember them all. Just ask go, me anything. Go back and listen to it. Yeah. What uh, What are the best and worst parts of success? Well, <sighs> success is such a nebulous word. Yeah. I mean, what was your, and this is a question I ask a lot of people, what, I mean, growing up, what was your definition of success and how did that change? Man, you know, I never thought about success. I just thought about doing what I wanted to do. You know, again, growing up in a blue-collar family, lower middle class, your parents are saying, get your education. Well, they never had one, so to speak. So to them, success, it's the American dream. It's get your education get a good job, make a lot of money. I just, I just never, I, that never was in the equation. Money was never in the, which is probably why I'm so, well, it is why I don't have any now because it was never. The motivation. Yeah. No, never the, I, I, although what motivation? I didn't want to work for nothing. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, I wanted to, you know, money was kind of a, a, well, I had to raise a family. And so you want to make good money. And I, I yeah. did all right. But it wasn't a key thing for writing a bit. Never. You weren't writing that bit because you knew, all right, I'm going to write that bit for this money. You were writing the bit because it was a good bit, and then hopefully you're making some money That's with it. That's why I did everything. Yeah. I mean, I when I got into comedy, it's it was just because it was fun. I, I Success to me, I, I think I achieved it in, in a lot of ways because I wanted to have a family, and I got a great one. And I wanted to be a comedian, and I was. And I wanted to write, and I did. Um, you know, I, I don't have any debt. That's pretty good. It's really good. And, uh, you know, success to me is just having a lot of love in your life and having <clears throat> having the important things. The rest of it's all just bullshit, you know, as, as most people find out when they when they get that thing they think is their success, it's like, okay, now what? I used to teach my students that. What do you want? What What is it that you want in your life? And it's like, oh, I want a new car. Okay, well, say, if, say you want a new car, okay? That's pretty achievable. You get a new car. Now what? Now what? You know, well, I want another new car. Well, no, you don't. You know, you already got the new car. What do you really want? I want a good job where I make a lot of money. Okay. That's achievable. You get it. Now what? You make a lot of money. Now what? Well, now I've got to use my income. I've got to. Now I got to buy a car I can't afford. Now I got to buy a house. Now I got to join this. I got, and I get overextended. 
this day and age, you get fired, now what? So you better have something that's they can't take away from you, like peace of mind. That's success. Having, being able to look people in the eye, that's success, I think. Definitely, definitely. And then last question, I mean, how... Uh, I mean, where do you see, you know, what is that legacy? What, what is the legacy of Craig Hawksley? There's an old uh, <clears throat> adage, I guess it's in a show business adage, that I think will, will describe exactly what you're saying. People in show business, there's five areas of your life. And it goes, you start out, Who's Craig Hawksley? And then the second phase is, get me Craig Hawksley. And then the third phase is, get me a young Craig Hawksley. And then the fourth phase is, whatever happened to Craig Hawksley? And the fifth phase is, who's Craig Hawksley? So that's my legacy. That's cool. And I hope uh, this episode of the podcast helps people to understand who is Craig Hawksley. And uh, it'll be out there on the interweb for <laughs> for ages when we're all well and gone. And somebody listening to this and like, that Craig Hawksley is a pretty, pretty interesting guy. He's a cool dude. I like you. I like you too, Ken. I really, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we did this. this yeah, is this is great. Thanks, buddy. My pleasure. You know, they got this uh, every time in the summer, especially they got that emergency broadcast system that warns us of uh, impending bad weather. You know, I can see when a storm is coming. You know, I want to know when the Jehovah Witnesses are in my neighborhood. <laughs> I think we give <clears throat> anthropologists too much leeway. They just dug up some bones in a guy's yard in Memphis, Tennessee, that the anthropologists said are between 30,000 and 2 million years old. <laughs> How'd you have the, like to have your doctor say, well, in this circumcision, I'm going to be taken off between 1 and 4 inches. <laughs> You know, I'd like to be there in a million years when they excavate our society so I could set them straight. When that guy says, we think this glass figurine is a symbol of the fertility goddess, I'll say, no, that's Mrs. Butterworth. <laughs> I thought about taking that language course at um, Rosetta Stone. The one that says that you can learn a second language the same way you learned your first one. But it took me three years to learn the first one. You know, so I guess if I take Spanish and that one, it's still, I'll be saying in one year I'll be going dog will be woo-woo, woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo. <clears throat> I don't think Americans need to learn another language. We already know from watching Star Trek that the rest of the whole galaxy speaks English. <laughs> I went to Europe 
and they said, uh, speak French. You know, when you get to French, don't you have to speak French? Pantomime. But I hate mimes. I saw a mime on a corner in France. You know. I'm thinking, boy, as soon as he comes out of that box, I'm kicking his ass. <laughs> Health's important, you know, it's important to, to be healthy. They got all that stuff that you can buy, that, those products, like the Fat Whacker. What's the name of it? Fat Whacker, $29.95. Their slogan was, you want to keep that weight off, whack it off. But if that was true, I'd weigh about 90 pounds. I went in for the, um, I went in for my prostate exam. That's the one that only men get. I was bent over the table, had my pants down. I could hear the doctor putting on his rubber gloves. He goes, now, this may cause an erection. And I'm thinking, in me or you? <laughs> and if it's me, take your time. <laughs> <laughs> 